0: Do any of you feel like you need more rules in your life? Sometimes life can feel like nothing but rules. Rules about what you can and can't say. Rules about what you should and shouldn't eat. Rules about what you can and can't do to your house. Rules in the workplace. Rules in the classroom. Rules at home. Many people view Christianity as just another set of rules. Rules. Keep the Ten Commandments, obey Jesus' teaching, go to church, read the Bible, pray. It's easy to understand why Christianity is widely seen to be a set of rules. For one thing, other major world religions, such as Islam and Buddhism, really are fundamentally ethical systems. In these cases, the rules are the religion. So it seems safe to assume Christianity would be the same. But also, Christianity does have rules. There are commands all over the place in Scripture, from the Old Testament to Jesus' own teaching to Paul's letters to churches and elsewhere. And if you think Christianity is fundamentally a set of rules, I can understand why that wouldn't appeal to you. Maybe you think you've got more than enough rules to follow already. Maybe you think that contemporary Western values are a more reliable guide to the good life than the Bible's teachings. Maybe you'd rather do away with other people's rules altogether and follow wherever your heart leads you. But what if Christianity isn't fundamentally a system of morality? What if rules, however important, or secondary? What if the foundation is something completely different? Our passage for this morning is the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verses 15 to 24. It's on page 901 of the Pew Bibles. We're continuing a series through John 14 to 17. In our passage, we're going to see that Christianity isn't fundamentally rules, but a relationship. Now, that's the kind of thing preachers say all the time, but preachers say it all the time because it's the kind of thing Jesus says all the time, especially in John's gospel. The relationship comes first. Rules follow. And the relationship makes the rules a way to both express and experience love. Please follow along as I read these verses. John 14, verses 15 to 24. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him. And make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. This passage circles back to the same theme three times. Whoever loves Jesus will keep his commandments. Obedience comes from love, and love in action is obedience. And each time Jesus makes this point, He also makes promises to those who love Him. These promises are astonishingly intimate. These promises bring about communion, fellowship, personal knowledge. They bring us into the most intimate relationship imaginable with the God who created and redeemed us. So our question for this morning is, what does it mean to have a relationship with Jesus? What does it mean to have a relationship with Jesus? And there are really two halves to the text, what we must do and what Jesus will do. This relationship has two sides. There are responsibilities Jesus gives us and promises He makes us. Since the passage circles around these two halves of the relationship, we won't walk through the passage in order, but we'll first consider what we must do, then what Jesus will do. So, first half of the sermon, we must. Second half of the sermon, He will. First, we must love Him. We must love. Love him. We see this in verses 15, 21, and 23 to 24. Verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And then, The negative in verse 24, whoever does not love me does not keep my words. In these verses, Jesus is defining a right relationship to him as one of love. And he's defining what it means to love him. He is identifying those who love him as those who obey him. And in each case, after this definition, He makes a promise about what He will do. He will ask the Father to send the Spirit. He will show Himself to us. He will, with the Father, make His home in us. Now it sure sounds like each of these promises is a response to our love, as if our love is what earns or prompts or deserves this promise sounds as if Jesus is saying, hey, if you love me and do what I tell you to do, here's what I'm going to do for you. But is this tit for tat? Is this quid pro quo? Does our love and obedience come first and Jesus' love comes second? Not at all. Jesus says in the next chapter, John 15 verse 16, you did not choose me. But I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. The initiative is all on his side. And the same John who wrote this gospel tells us in a letter in 1 John chapter 4, verse 19, we love because he first loved us. You know what else? We should note the contrast here if we zoom out and consider the context of John's gospel. We should note the contrast between what Jesus taught and what his disciples would do immediately after receiving this teaching. Jesus warned his disciples in John 16, verse 32, "'Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone.'" In Jesus' hour of greatest need, his disciples would utterly fail him. They would not show him love when it came to the test. Yet, as the end of John's gospel tells us, Jesus still gave them the gift of the Spirit. They failed him, yet he kept his promise. We love because he first loved us. That's the Christian life in a nutshell, and it's the good news of the gospel in a nutshell. He first loved us. All of us by nature love ourselves supremely. We instinctually put ourselves first. We read earlier in Deuteronomy 6 how God commands us to love Him with all our heart, soul, and might. But we've all failed to do this. That's why we have earned God's judgment. What we deserve from God as a matter of justice is eternal condemnation. But as Scripture tells us, God is love. He loved us when we were unlovely. And His supreme act of love for us was sending His Son into the world to rescue us, to redeem us, to save us. Why is Jesus about to leave the upper room hand himself over to his betrayer, and willingly suffer crucifixion. It's out of love for us, and it's to endure the consequences for how we have failed to love God. Jesus is going to pay for all of our wrongs. He's going to reconcile us to God by taking on himself what we deserved. And then on the third day, he rose from the dead and ascended to the Father in order to prepare a place for us with him and to send us His Spirit. Jesus accomplished all this for us. We contributed nothing. If you've never turned from loving yourself supremely to instead trust in Christ fully, turn and trust Him today. Believe in Him. Rely on Him. He offers you free salvation, motivated entirely by love, with no prerequisites, because there are none that you can keep. Except the free gift of God's love in Christ. And if this is how he has loved us, how can we not love him? Three times in our passage, Jesus defines his disciples as those who love him. To be a disciple of Jesus is to love Jesus supremely. Jesus does not merely want our duty, our grudging obligation. The heart of Christianity is Christ's heart for us and his claiming our hearts for him. Love is delighted devotion, fidelity freely given. Do you love Jesus? If you only relate to Jesus as a boss or a taskmaster, you don't yet truly know him. How would you rather spend an evening? Option one, preparing your taxes. Now, I know some exceptions to this rule, but as a rule, most of us prepare our taxes only out of obligation. We're commanded to, the law requires it of us, so we just get it over with. Option two, spending an evening with a close friend you haven't had good time with in months. The difference between those two options, the first one's all duty, the second one's all delight. Jesus is saying that his disciples delight in him. What does it mean to have a relationship with Jesus? It means you love him. No one can truly know Jesus and not love him. And how do we prove our love for him? Well, there's something else we see that we must do repeatedly in this passage. We must obey Him. We must obey Him. We see this in the same three places. Verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And again, verse 24, whoever does not love me does not keep my word. Notice what comes first in verses 15 and 23. If you love Jesus, you will obey him. It is a statement of fact. There's an unbreakable link between loving Jesus and doing what he commands. If you love Jesus, you will delight to do whatever duty he lays on you. If your love for Jesus doesn't lead to obeying Jesus, then it isn't love. Love without obedience is just a front, a facade. It's a cardboard cutout. And this is not some mystical principle that it takes special spiritual insight to discern. We understand this connection in everyday life. If you love someone, you will grow to love what they love. When we lived in Cambridge, our daughter Lucy developed an intense love of birds that continues to the present day. England has this rich, beautiful variety of garden birds you can see anywhere, and Cambridge in particular has these majestic swans that glide up and down the river. And when we would take our kids to a playground, Lucy would wander off to the trees and hedgerows and just stand for hours watching birds just completely wrapped. You know what? The rest of us grew to love birds too. Lucy loves birds. We love Lucy. Now we all love birds. (laughs) What does Jesus love? If you love him, what do you start to love? Obeying the Father. Just a few verses later in John 14 verse 30, Jesus says, excuse me, verse 31, I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. If you love Jesus, you will love to obey the Father because Jesus loves obeying the Father. And as Jesus tells us in verse 24, the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. The Father has given His Son commands to give us. Jesus' word is originally the Father's and it belongs to the Son because the Son eternally exists from the Father. You know what else love does? It makes you attentive. What you love, you look at and long for. Just a few weeks ago, we refilled the bird feeder in our front yard. And in the last few weeks, we have seen seven different types of birds feeding at the feeder. And six of them are exciting ones. Sparrows are just too common. You just see them everywhere. So now Lucy, several times a day, will run to the front window to see what birds are there. Do you run to the window of God's Word to gaze at Christ? Do you run to the window of God's Word to see what Jesus is commanding you? Here's a litmus test of love. Is your duty your delight? Is your duty your delight? That test works for your love for Jesus, and it works for your love for others. If your duty is not your delight, then at least in some measure, love is lacking. I have to confess, I'm not always delighted to serve those whom God has given me to serve. Our daughter Margaret is just two months old, and Kristen had a physically taxing pregnancy, During the pregnancy and now having a newborn, I always haven't been as cheerful and prompt and quick as I should be to serve Kristen in practical ways. Sinfully, I can resent the burden. Selfishly, I can, in some quiet, locked-away corner of my heart, view her suffering as a burden on me. But by God's grace, even over the last year, I think he's grown me in being delighted to carry out love's daily duties. And I think Kristen would say the same. By God's grace, I'm growing more cheerful, more eager, more delighted to serve. If you love Jesus, you will delight to do whatever he requires. So then the question is, what does he require of us? His greatest commandment is this. John 13, 34 to 35, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And he says the same thing in chapter 15, verse 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. The summary of the whole charge Jesus lays on us believers is that we love one another. This doesn't mean he's unconcerned about our love for other people, but it does mean that our love for one another is a special way that we prove our love for him. Jesus laid down his life for us, and so we should lay down our lives for one another in the church. Jesus is saying that the supreme test of your love for him is your love for other Christians. He's saying that the most reliable measure of how much you love him is how much you love his people. Here are just a few ways, a few examples the New Testament gives that we should love one another. Romans 12, 13, contributes to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Hospitality. Romans 12:15. rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Galatians 6, 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Philippians 2, 4, look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. There are dozens of passages like this, and fulfilling these commands starts with committing to a specific local body of believers whom you're promising to love and who in turn are promising to love you. And love for fellow Christians as members of a church looks like delighting to serve others at cost to yourself. That's how Jesus loved us, and that's how we must love each other. And of course, Christ's commands go beyond loving one another. To joyfully submit to Christ is to obey him in everything he commands us to do, both in his own words preserved in Scripture and in the whole of Scripture, since it is all the word of the Father, inspired by the Spirit, to bear witness to the Son. To love Christ is to write him a blank check, whose memo line reads, Joyful Obedience. To love Christ is to find His yoke easy and His burden light because you know that His ways are better than your ways. To love Christ is to gladly quit trying to run your life and to experience the freedom and relief of submitting to Him. As a church, we want everything we do together to serve the goal of stirring up our love for Christ in order to advance our obedience to Christ. We never want to settle for love without obedience or obedience without love. Love without obedience is false. And obedience without love is futile. Our whole aim in covenanting together as members is to lovingly energize each other's love for Christ so that that love would power our obedience to Christ. Jesus is not a legalist. He is not making us earn our way to Him. His commands are wise and good. They're the path of life and blessing. They are nothing other than love. Love for Him and love for others. He has no hesitancy whatsoever in commanding our obedience because our obedience to Him is what's best for us. Parents, teach that to your children. Every Christian Teach that to your own heart. We love because he first loved us. Relationship first and the rules follow. And when we enter into a relationship with Jesus by faith, that makes his rules a way to express love for him and to better know his love for us, which brings us to his part in the relationship, which is all that he promises to do for us. So now the he will half. Of the sermon. Second, He will. He will rise for us. He will rise for us. Now, I say that from the point of view of the passage because Jesus is looking ahead. He's looking forward to tell His disciples what's going to happen. Of course, we know that He did rise for us. But when we put ourselves in the disciples' shoes, we're looking forward in anticipation. We see Jesus' resurrection in verses 18 and also 19 and 20. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. I think verse 18 refers to Jesus' resurrection, but I think it also refers to more than that, including His coming to us by sending His Spirit, which we'll get to. But for now, let's focus on verses 19 and 20. In these verses, Jesus is saying that the world will see Him no more, but His disciples will see Him because after His resurrection, Jesus only appeared to His disciples and to those who became his disciples by seeing him raised from the dead. As far as the world was concerned, after Jesus died, he was gone. Jesus' coming resurrection is also why he says, because I live, you also will live. Jesus' resurrection guarantees our future resurrection. And Jesus' resurrection obtains for us new spiritual life here and now. Spiritually speaking, we Christians have been raised from the dead. If you've been born again, then that happened because God applied the same power to your dead soul that he applied to the corpse of Jesus in the grave. Then in verse 20, Jesus tells us another effect of the resurrection. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Here, Jesus tells His disciples that the resurrection will dispel the darkness of doubt. It will correct and confirm His disciples' knowledge of Him. Specifically, the resurrection will disclose three dazzling truths. We see them all in verse 20. First, Jesus says, I am in my Father. He says the same thing in verse 10 as we saw last week. Jesus is in His Father. That means they share the single divine nature. They are distinct persons, Father and Son, but they exist in one undivided essence. So the three divine persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, mutually indwell one another. They are each in the other. Where you see one, there you have the other two as well. And again, we saw some of that last week. How does Jesus' resurrection reveal this truth? I think because it confirms what he said in John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Or consider what Jesus says in John 11, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Jesus isn't just raised from the dead. He is the resurrection. Jesus doesn't just lay down his life. He takes it up again. These are claims to divine power. You know, sometimes we'll, sometimes people will look at Jesus' teaching in the Gospels, and they'll say, well, didn't, the, didn't Elijah and Elisha, Old Testament prophets, raise the dead? Is this really like a claim to divine power? Haven't we seen this before? Well, no. Elijah and Elisha didn't raise the dead. They prayed. They asked God, and then God raised the dead. What does Jesus do at the grave of Lazarus? He says, Lazarus, come out. Jesus raised the dead. He has power to raise the dead because he is the creator God incarnate, and so he can raise himself from the dead. Jesus is saying that his resurrection will prove his claim to divinity. It will disclose that he is in the Father. And Jesus also says that the resurrection will show the disciples that you are in me and I am in you. So this is also a kind of mutual indwelling. What does it mean that we are in Jesus? It means we are united to him. It's as if we are inserted into him so that his relationship to the Father becomes ours. What belongs to him in relating to the Father as God's eternal Son now belongs to us by grace as the Father's adopted sons. And Jesus also says that He is in us. As we'll see further in the next point, this means that He dwells in us. He is in us to equip us and empower us, to sustain us and strengthen us, to protect and provide for us. Paul says exactly the same thing in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus is in the Father in an utterly unique, eternal sense. They are one in nature, and so their unity is beyond our ability to comprehend, We are in Christ, and Christ is in us in a sense that is analogous to and based on his unity with the Father. The Son's unity with the Father is the root, our union with him is the fruit. The Son's unity with the Father is the pattern and the original, and our union with him is the derivative model. Nevertheless, By being united to the Son, we are brought into the circle of the eternal, loving fellowship of the Trinity. What does it mean practically that we're in Christ and Christ is in us? The best analogy I could think of, and believe me, I tried, is friendship. When you have a real, deep friendship with someone, you are in your friend and your friend is in you. You enter into your friend's history, their struggles and sorrows, their present circumstances, their hopes, their dreams and ambitions, and your friend enters into yours, your joys and griefs. You are in each other in a way that is at least a glimpse of the kind of unity we have with Christ dwelling in us. Jesus will rise for us, and he has risen for us. But he doesn't just promise to rise again. He will also come to us by his Spirit. He will come to us by his Spirit, and he has. We see this in verses 16 to 18 and verses 22 to 24. Let's start reading again at verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father... And He will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. You know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. In verse 16, Jesus promises His true disciples that He will secure for them all the assistance they will ever need. When Christ returns to the Father, He will ask the Father to send the Holy Spirit. Here Jesus calls the Spirit another helper. Such a sweet title. That's because Jesus Himself was their first helper. But He will now be physically absent from them. So... In the place of the physically absent Jesus, the Holy Spirit will execute the same office to Jesus' disciples that Jesus did when he was with them. Sometimes we Christians today think it would have been so much better to be with Jesus in person. We're like kids on Christmas morning looking around at our siblings' presents, going, Oh, mom and dad, come on. Why'd she get the huge Lego set? That's so much better. Brothers and sisters, hear what Jesus says in John 16, 7. I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. It is not the first disciples who got the bigger piece of pie. It's us. We can take the Greek word behind the word helper and Englishize it as paraclete. This Greek word paraclete has many shades of meaning, including advocate, comforter, intercessor. God the Son makes intercession for the saints. God the Holy Spirit makes intercession in the saints. And Jesus says, this helper will be with us forever. Kristen and I have a five-year warranty on our van. It covers some things for the next five years, that if they break, we don't have to pay for it. But after that warranty is up, all future repairs come out of our pocketbook. Brothers and sisters, there's no expiration date to the Spirit's Ministry within us. As long as we need his help, he's here to give it. He will be with you forever. As long as we live in this world, as long as we battle our own sinful flesh, the Holy Spirit is here to bring Christ's own power into the innermost recesses of our hearts. In verse 17, Jesus says that the world cannot receive the Spirit because it neither sees him nor knows him. What Jesus means by the world is the sum total of people who oppose God and His purposes. This world is not a neutral place. It's a spiritual war zone. And ultimately, there are only two sides, for God and against Him. Those who belong to the world, those whose hearts are set on the world, those whose eyes are fixed on the world, cannot perceive the work of the Spirit. They don't recognize Him even when His work is right in front of them. By contrast, Jesus says in verse 17, You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. At the moment Jesus is speaking to them, the Holy Spirit is with them. He's near them. He's among them. He's in their midst. How is the Spirit present to them? Because Jesus himself is with them. At this moment in the narrative, Jesus makes the Spirit present. As the Father says to John the Baptist in John 1, verse 33, "'He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain.'" This is He who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And verse 17 in our passage tells us what it means that Jesus will baptize with the Holy Spirit. After Jesus returns to the Father, the Spirit will be not just with, but in the disciples.'" The Spirit dwells in every believer, giving new life, convicting of sin, illumining our hearts, and leading us to obey Christ. Then Jesus says in verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. I think this both comments on what he just said and introduces what he's about to say. In other words, by obtaining the Spirit for us, Jesus himself comes to us. In his earthly ministry, Jesus made the Spirit present. After Jesus' ascension, the Spirit makes Jesus present. In sending the Spirit to us, Jesus himself comes to us. He doesn't hand us off. He doesn't pass us off to a deputy or an assistant. It's not that we can't get through to his You know, inbox and somebody else answers our email. Jesus comes to us by the Spirit, which means He doesn't leave us alone. He doesn't leave us as orphans. Orphans are bereft, they're exposed, they're defenseless, they're helpless. And that is what we would be if we didn't have the Holy Spirit. We would have no comfort in Christ's absence, no power to overcome sin, no strength to stand against Satan. But with the Spirit in us, we have all those things welling up from within. Jesus develops this same thought in response to Judas's question. That's verses 22 to 24. Let's turn there. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Jesus promised to manifest himself to whoever loves him. So Judas's question is understandable. Why won't Jesus show himself to everyone? Why won't he make himself universally plain? The reason is that Jesus' revelation aims at a relationship. As we'll consider in a few moments, in this age, Jesus shows himself only to those who believe, who love, who obey. And that's what Jesus explains in verses 23 and 24. Again, he forges an unbreakable tie between loving him and obeying him. And what will Jesus do for you, for you who love him and obey him? Verse 23, my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Again, how do the father and son make their home in us? By sending the Spirit. The Spirit makes the Father and Son present to us and in us. Just as Jesus is in the Father and the Father is in Him, so both Father and Son are in the Spirit. The Greek word for home in verse 23 is the same one translated rooms back in verse 2. In verse 2, as we saw last week, Jesus promises to go and prepare a home for us in heaven. In verse 23, He promises along with the Father to make us His home. And recall verse 3 from last week. I will come again and will take you to Myself, that where I am, that is in the Father's house, you may be also. In verse 3, the believer comes to the Son and the Father. In verse 23... The Father and the Son come to the believer. Even while He's making a home for you in heaven, Jesus hasn't left you homeless. He has come to you, and He has made you His home. What does it mean to have a relationship with Jesus? It means He comes to you by His Spirit and makes His home with you. If you're not a believer in Jesus, I wonder what all this sounds like to you. Does it sound like nonsense? Does it sound appealing? Maybe a bit of both? I'm going to try to describe a little bit more of what this relationship feels like from the inside. This relationship means that as aware as I am of my confining limits and constant failures, I know that the end of my resources is not the end of my resources. It means I know that my own strength isn't the end of my strength. My power isn't the end of my power. It means that I not only hope for change in myself and in other believers, but I see it all the time. It means that when a situation looks hopeless, a relationship broken beyond repair or sin is seemingly immovable in its dominance. It means in such a hopeless situation, I still have hope. That hope isn't wishful thinking, it's well-grounded confidence in the power of somebody who's not me. It means that however other people might disappoint me, however lonely I might feel at some time, I know that God is not just for me, not just with me, but in me. It means that I know God always has more help to give whether in my own life or to other believers, and nothing can ultimately hinder that help. This relationship, the Father and Son dwelling in us by the Spirit and us dwelling in Christ, this is Christianity. To be a Christian is to live in God and for God to live in you. That's why the rules are secondary. That's why the commandments aren't a burden, but a blessing. They mark the path to a deeper knowledge of God and a fuller experience of his love. And that's just what Jesus tells us in verse 21. Briefly, another thing Jesus will do for us, he will show himself to us. He will show himself to us. Verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. As we've seen, Jesus promises to rise again and show himself to the disciples, and he promises to come to them, to come to us in the person of his Spirit. But here in verse 21, what does it mean that he will manifest himself to them, show himself To them. I think it means that throughout your entire life of seeking to grow in the knowledge of Christ and obedience to Christ, Jesus promises to personally reveal more of Himself to you. As you grow in following Jesus, the deeper, richer, more intimate knowledge of Jesus that you gain. It's not coming secondhand. Jesus is his own authorized spokesperson. Jesus is his own authorized revealer of himself. He won't just speak to you. He will show himself to you. You won't just know about him. You'll know him. You won't just think about him. You'll have fellowship with him. You won't just follow him. You'll commune with him. Do you want to know Christ better? Then pray this promise back to him. Lord Jesus, show yourself to me. And one day he will show himself to us face to face. Finally, he will return for us. He will return for us. I think this is implied in verses 18 and 19. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. That promise will be completed when Christ comes in person. And in verse 19, Jesus says, Because I live, you also will live. Now, what kind of promise would that be if this resurrection life ended with our own death? That promise will find its full fulfillment when Christ returns bodily and He raises our dead bodies from the grave. If you doubt the promise of Jesus' return and the renovation of all things... If you doubt that you will live forever with Him, then look to His resurrection. In Jesus' resurrection, you see your own fate previewed and the fate of the whole universe previewed. Jesus' resurrection is the new creation. It starts with one. Because I live, you also will live. Jesus' resurrection secures our resurrection. Jesus' death ensures our acceptance with God. His return to heaven prepares our home with God, and His coming to us by His Spirit makes us the home of God. His whole saving work grants us to share in His relationship to His Father. My God is reconciled. His pardoning voice I hear. He owns me for his child. I can no longer fear. With confidence I now draw nigh. With confidence I now draw nigh. And Father, Abba, Father, cry. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can call you by that name because Jesus has reconciled us to you. We thank you that you are not merely for us or even with us, but you are in us by your indwelling Spirit. We pray that you would give us confidence. We pray that you would encourage us. We pray that you would sustain and multiply our love for Christ and obedience to Him by the power of Your Spirit within us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.